from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Kurt Hine. When Kurt was 18, doing his freshman year at Chapman College, he participated in the Seven Seas Division, a four-month semester circling the globe on a ship. It was a transforming experience for him allowing him to discover his world community. Kurt describes his finding the Baha'i faith and how it informed what he would do for the rest of his life. I started the interview by asking Kurt where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in San Francisco, California, and what was delightful about growing up in that place was the multicultural dimensions of San Francisco, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religions, so my family was very involved in interacting with people of other religions and cultures. And so I grew up with, uh, forgive the statement, but my best friend was Jewish. <laughs> we had friends from different faiths and different group. My parents, when I was young, went on a trip to the Orient for a summer. And when they came back, they were so delighted with their experience, predominantly in Japan, and so they brought many of the U.S. visitors to meet us and for us to meet them, and that was a, a wonderful gift. So having that interaction with multiple people was a very significant part of my youth. And then when I was 18, I was able to get on a ship that went around the world. It was a student ship associated with Chapman College, and it was called the World Campus Afloat. And so here I am, 18 years old, sailing out of Los Angeles in February of 1966 and docking four months later in June in New York, and in the meantime, visiting 17 different countries around the world. Now, you grew up as a Baha'i? No, I had no connection with the Baha'i faith as a young man. Okay. I start, my life started out... Uh, as a Lutheran, uh, my brother and I attended a Lutheran school uh, in San Francisco, and I was in Lutheran school until the fourth grade. And then after that, my parents became discouraged with the uh, culture of the dominant churches, especially the uh, doctrine imposition. And so we began to... Uh, experience other faiths for a while. We, we spent time with the Unitarian Church, but not very long, and so church life diminished in my, in my, early, in my early youth. It wasn't until I was on that. Ch- in fact, I, I would have to say there was no spiritual searching or education being conducted for me in a specific sense. Morality, yes. Oneness of mankind, yes, but nothing specific to any faith. What were your interests growing up? My interests growing up, I was especially interested in theater. 
and in dance. I was in a, in a delightful dance program for young people in San Francisco when I was young, and I was very successful in that and enjoyed it immensely. But then by the time I got to junior high, there wasn't much dance offered of, of that variety. So it was just basically <laughs> rock and roll dancing and that sort of thing. But uh, I never did get to, to formally pursue any studies in dance. My other interests, uh, I loved reading. My family, uh, my mother and father were both in college when I was young, so our home was always full of books. Our living room was a couch, a fireplace, and bookshelves. <laughs> mm. And so reading was a fundamental dimension of our family life, and the family discussions were often centered on talking about principles and ideas and concepts. Lots of puns and jokes, too, but uh, my, my fondest memory is just having us all talking about things that matter to us and enjoying that relationship. And what did you study in college? Well, that's fascinating. I started out in college. I was starting out in drama. But then the second semester of my freshman year, a recruiter came. I was in a community college in the San Francisco Bay Area, Foothill. A recruiter came to our college recruiting students for a program called uh, the College of the Seven Seas which was uh, later known as the World Campus Afloat. And what it was was classes offered on a, on a ship uh, while, the, while the ship went around the world. And so I was able to, then I was only 18. My parents had enjoyed a summer working in Japan, and my brother had enjoyed a summer going to school in Eastern Europe. And so when this opportunity came up, my family encouraged me and helped support me, and I got a nice scholarship, so I was able to sail out of San Francisco and in February and sail around the world to 17 different countries and dock in New York uh, four months later. It was an amazing gift to me. That was, of course, needless to say, the, the primary foundation of my identity and my relationship to other human beings and things. It was a wonderful experience. Now, Kurt, why was it such a fundamental experience for you? Can you explain that? Yeah, I think so. The The thing for me that was most significant was because we went to so many places, so many different countries and different cultures, I witnessed with my own eyes the oneness of mankind. I could see my human family in its remarkable diversity from places like East Africa to Israel to Italy. And in that experience, it was often, you know, I would, when we would take our field trips and things, uh, it would be to the main cultural locations in the different countries, like in India, it might be a temple, and, and in East Africa would be to uh, villages. In Rome, of course, it was to St. Peter's. In Israel, it was to Jerusalem. And so what I began to witness was, even though we were all different colors, and even though we all spoke different languages and had different foods to eat and different clothes to wear, and different dominant themes in our own in our own life 
it was very evident to me that what mattered most to people were the same things that mattered to me, family and community and being happy and enjoying the company of friends and that sort of thing. So it was it was a profoundly meaningful experience for me, and the way I describe it is it introduced me to my to my true family, which was the world family, and it also introduced me to the diversity of expressions that people were using, for example, the diversity of religions that they participated in, and yet everyone essentially was was worshiping the same reality, the divine reality, and even though those expressions diversified, they were focused on the same essential truth, which was the worship of God and the attempt to be of service to other people and to make sacrifices, and that was evident no matter where I was. So what happened after you returned, after your four-month trip? (laughs) Well, then I went back to my sophomore year in college, which I found rather boring, (laughs) And so I, I applied for and was accepted and got another scholarship to go to school in Europe for a year. And so I went to school in Holland for a year. And it was a business school, which wasn't my interest, but I was interested in living in Europe for the summer, I mean for the year. And so while living there, I got to travel all throughout Europe, Western Europe, but also got to visit uh, Russia and uh, Czechoslovakia and other places that were of profound influence and, and interest in Berlin. So again, I got to witness another dimension of that global reality that I had experienced a year and a half earlier. And so my roommates in college were all Dutchmen, and so they would take me home with them on the weekends, and I got to know their families. And that was just a, a really delightful experience for me. And I have a dear friend from those days who's coming to visit me next week. <laughs> a mere 40 years later, so isn't that delightful? So did you actually graduate with a business degree? Not at all. When I came back from my year in Holland, uh, I had to find something to major in. And Fortunately, in those days at the University of Oregon, there was a special school for social sciences called the School of Community Service and Public Affairs. There was a professor there who knew of my global interest, and so he established a major at the school called uh, International Studies, and that's what I then got my bachelor's degree in, was International Studies. And so that was a delight. What happened, I hadn't mentioned it, when I was uh, 21 in uh, one of my last years of college, I was missing dance so much that I participated in a folk dance group, international folk dance, at the university. And one weekend, the group went up to Portland to go to the big gathering that occurred in Portland on a weekly basis. And one of the women in the group, well, we had a friend, and we all stayed at her friend's house. And one night at her friend's house, I went out on the on the roof at about midnight, and Sandy came out, and we started talking, and we ended up talking all night long, and I told her about what I cared about and what I was concerned about and how much of what I was seeing in the world was so 
discouraging in terms of the racism and the sexism and the all the different prejudices. And as we talked, she would say, you sound like a Baha'i, Kurt. And then she would explain, she would offer one of the quotations from the teachings of Baha'u'llah or of, of the other teachings of the faith. And, and I just had to say, well, that makes sense. A couple of days later, we were back in Eugene, and Sandri introduced me to her friend, Ray Estes. And Ray and I started talking, and he gave me a book to read, which was Baha'u'llah and the New Era. And I read the book, and I believed everything about it. And so Ray and I were talking over lunch the next couple of days later. And I said, Ray, I believe all of this. And I said, but does this mean I have to accept Baha'u'llah? And Ray said a very delightful thing. He said, well, Kurt, you could always give it a try if you like, and if you don't like it, just leave. And that seemed so logical to me that uh, I joined the Baha'i faith. And it was an amazing experience immediately. I mean, I got to meet a, a diverse collection of people that amazed me that people of such a diversity culturally and intellectually and uh, physically and things would be loving friends to each other. And that was a, a wonderful first recognition of, of the reality of what the faith was about. And it was astounding to me, needless to say. As it happened, I have, I had an aunt, a maternal aunt, and I had heard a couple of years earlier that she had become a Baha'i, but I didn't have a clue what that meant. And I just forgot about it. And then when I became a Baha'i, I called up her home. And when I called her house, her husband answered the phone and said, What's wrong, Kurt? Because I never called, of course. And I said, Nothing. I'd just like to speak to Candy. And so Candy came to the phone and she said, Kurt, what's wrong? Tell me the truth. And I said, Well, there's nothing wrong, Candy, but I did want to tell you one thing. And she said, Okay, what is it? Let me know. And I said, Allah Abha, which is the greeting the Baha'is exchange to each other, which means God is most glorious. So I said, Allah Abha. And Candy said, well, who taught you that? <laughs> and I said, the Baha'is did, Candy. I'm a Baha'i. And she screamed and hopped the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you go on, Kurt, I'm a, I'm a little interested in your question to... Uh Ray Estes saying, well, I believe in all this stuff, but do I actually have to accept Baha'u'llah? What was your hesitation? Uh, good question. Um, well, I was, I was very suspicious of authority, and I had seen the abuses of religious leadership. And most of the religions I had any familiarity with, I was not at all pleased with the doctrinal dimensions of, of the faith and the the uh, leadership of all the clergy, which I, I really found repugnant. And so that was my primary concern was, you know, is this going to mean I'm, I'm stuck in this kind of a circumstance again? Or not again, but in this kind of a circumstance. And then, of course, I, I, real, I learned in reading about the faith and talking about the faith that the Baha'is don't have any clergy and that there is no individual leadership of an administrative nature in the Baha'i faith. 
and all the administrative authority is vested in institutions that are uh, elected democratically by the Baha'is themselves. And so that was quite an astonishment and, uh, needless to say, a, a refreshing delight to encounter that. So that's why I was, I was concerned when I said I have to accept Baha'u'llah, meaning I was, I was uh, reluctant to put myself under a, a structure of authority such as I had witnessed in other faiths, like the Catholic Church, for example. And then Ray made it very clear that that wasn't the way the faith worked. And that's why he then said, so give it a try, and if you don't like it, you can always just get away from it. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? <laughs> well, it's fascinating. Um, I became a Baha'i in August of 1969, just a month after man had landed on the moon. And uh, a month after, a month or two after, other significant events had occurred in the Western culture, and so I was very concerned about the, all the negative things that were happening and the, the confusion and divisions that were occurring. And so, when I embraced the faith, then it was a, a powerful delight for me. And I had known some of the Baha'is, of course, socially. And to get together with them was just a delight. And a couple of months after I was uh, a member of the Eugene community, they had uh, an election for to replace a member that had left. And that was like in November. So, Kurt, an election of yeah. ele- an election for what? Uh huh. Baha'is have their authority is vested in elected institutions at the local the national and the international level. They have no clergy, so the affairs of the faith are entrusted to the administrative bodies that are elected in the community. And so in the community of Eugene, Oregon, where I was living, we had a local spiritual assembly. And that assembly is nine individuals, none of whom seek the office. There are no nominations and there is no electoral process such as we see in the West. Rather, the Baha'is gather together once every year and write down privately and individually the the names of the nine people they think are most deserving of entrusting leadership for the community to. And then all the Baha'is fill out their ballots and turn them in. And then the nine individuals who receive the most votes are then the elected assembly for the coming year. And so that's how the leadership of the Baha'i faith is established on the administrative level in in local communities. And so none of those nine individuals has any authority as an individual. It's only when the body gathers together that they make decisions for their own community. And so that's what the election was about. And what amazed me was that that election in November when they were having to elect one individual to replace one who had left, I ended up being elected to the assembly. And I was just, uh, what's the word, um, astonished. And, you know, I'd only been to Baha'i about four months, but apparently the people entrusted me with being able to serve on that body, so that's what happened to me. 
that really got me launched in, in an immersion in the reality of the Baha'i community and Baha'i faith. And so I also, uh, that was in the, in the summer of 69, and then I was to graduate in, the, in June of 1970. And then, well, you know, in February I met this very attractive and brilliant and delightful woman who was a, a devoted Christian, and we fell in love, and her name is Delane. So we, I began going out with Delane regularly and daily, and we had a delightful friendship. I was a Baha'i, and she was a devoted Christian. And so she began reading some of the Baha'i writings. And then she immersed herself in prayer, and she had an amazing experience in her prayers and in her devotion to Christ that, for her, confirmed that Baha'u'llah was the fulfillment of the Christian teachings. And I'm not doing justice at all to her story, but the bottom line is she embraced the Baha'i faith. And when she did that, we ended up getting married a month later. (laughs) And so her... Her Baha'i anniversary is this coming week, June 10th, 1970, is when she became a Baha'i. And we got married on July 12th, a month later. So that's what happened there. So this was right after college. Yeah, that was right after I graduated from college. Uh, I graduated from college, and we got married a month later, and then we moved to New Mexico because I was working for the teacher corps which was kind of uh, an early version of what is now America Corps. And that was where you could go teach of the needy community and be supported by the U.S. government and work toward a master's degree in education. And that's what I was doing, but then I got drafted. And as a Baha'i, serving in the military is, is regarded as obligatory and honorable And what the Universal House of Justice, the supreme authority of the Baha'i community, has told the young men in America is to serve the faith, to serve in the military, and to seek conscientious objector status, but in the military. And so you can be in the army and be a conscientious objector at the same time. And that's what I was, which means that they didn't put me in any training to carry weapons and that kind of thing. What I ended up doing was getting trained to become a medic in Vietnam. But just before I was finished with my program for that, uh, they asked me if I would consider become a counselor for people for the active duty military who were returning from Nam but were addicted to heroin and other drugs because the Congress had established the need for healing bases, bases where military people can get help and healing for their addictions. And so that's what I ended up doing, living in San Francisco, my hometown, serving on the beautiful base in San Francisco, living off post and 
because of the program I was in, they told us to wear civilian clothes. So I worked for two years in the Army uh, in my hometown of San Francisco, living off post. And I only wore a uniform one day in the two years I was in that job. And so my wife was able to complete college at Mills College across the bay. And there I was having a delightful experience serving the veterans and... Uh, so that was two years in that experience. We got accepted into graduate school in Portland, Oregon at Lewis and Clark College and were trained to become teachers of the hearing impaired and deaf. So for the next couple of years, my wife and I were teachers of wonderful hearing impaired kids in preschool and elementary school. 35 years later, I'm still getting emails from some of my students who were like six years old at the time. And that was a wonderful delight. Kurt, what got you, you and your wife, even thinking about doing something like that? Well, we were both very uh, interested in careers that would be of service to people who were less fortunate. There's a, there's a wonderful quotation from Baha'u'llah, and he says, Be a lamp unto them that walk in darkness a joy to the sorrowful, a sea for the thirsty, an upholder and defender of the victim of oppression. And when you see the oppression that disabled children are subjected to in the culture and in their schools and regrettably even in their own homes, that was obviously a, a group of people who would benefit profoundly from that kind of help. And when we, when we were accepted to the graduate school at Lewis and Clark College, Delane had gone to that college for a couple of early years of her college career and really had a high respect and regard for that college. And this was a program that, that was very appealing to both of us, and we were very grateful for the privilege of being able to be in that program, and then we were very successful in it and, and ended up getting hired to be teachers in a in a school that had a special section for mentally handicapped children and also had a special section for hearing impaired ch children and so that's where we started out our education careers was as teachers in that school but then I realized I wanted to do something a little more than being in the classroom with elementary kids and so my wife consented to me applying for graduate school, and I wanted to work on a doctorate in the media. I had been involved in theater and photography and other things in high school and college, and I really had a profound attraction to the mass media as a way of informing and entertaining simultaneously. And so I was accepted into a program at the University of Oregon, which was a graduate school in the mass media. But when, when I started, I realized that that wasn't the place I would be happy studying at. And lo and behold, just a couple of months later, I get a phone call from Wilmette, Illinois, the National Center of the United States Baha'i Community. And the fellow there had seen a copy of my resume, which I had 
centered around a couple of years earlier when I was just exploring job opportunities. And he said, Kurt, we're looking for someone who has your kinds of experience. Would you be interested in coming here for an interview? So Delaney and I were flown from, Oregon, from Eugene, Oregon to Illinois to have an interview. It was in December. We didn't even have clothes to wear in that kind of weather. And uh, it was immediately a confirmation of so many of the things that I cared the most about and had the most skills in. And for Delaine as well, they were delighted to have her come and work there. So that was what we did. We accepted jobs at the Baha'i National Center in Illinois in 76, December of 76, and we moved to Illinois. And so I started, we both started working there, and then about six months later, we started our family, and our first child, our daughter, Katura, was born there in the suburbs of the northern Chicago area. And I ended up finding out that there was a wonderful program, graduate school program in my field, international communication, at Northwestern University. And I did so well on the... Uh, on the test, the graduate record exam test, that when they got my test results, they offered me a full scholarship and, and fellowship, which meant they would pay for my doctorate and also pay for me to do research overseas for a year. So that's what ended up happening. I would I would work at the at the Baha'i Center in Wilmette, and then the staff there was very supportive of me to also go to classes and do my work in the evenings and weekends for the for the office. So Delaine and I ended up raising our daughter and me finishing studies, and then we moved from there to Ecuador. Yeah, so before we get to Ecuador, what was your work at the Baha'i National Center? I worked in the treasurer's office. What I was responsible for was helping draft monthly communications and uh, articles for the Baha'i newspaper and also designing and presenting courses for the Baha'i summer schools about the fund. And so that was a delightful experience and I got to travel to several different parts of the U.S. and teach courses and meet so many wonderful souls in different places. Just delightful because I also supervised a group of people who served as national treasurer's representatives in their home communities. And again, even now, 40 years later, I, I got an email recently from a dear friend who's now in her 80s, but she remembers delightfully the work we did together in the 70s. So, There's an interesting concept about the Baha'i Fund uh, regarding who can contribute to the Baha'i Fund. Would you mind uh, explaining that a little bit? No, that's fine. What I enjoyed about doing and working for the Baha'i Fund was being able to help the Baha'i community learn about what the principles of the fund are. And those include such things as only Baha'is contribute to the Baha'i Fund, that no funds for the faith are accepted from outside the Baha'i community or sought from outside the Baha'i community. Another significant dimension of the Baha'i Fund is that there is no tithing, that individuals give what they can when they can. 
and there is no record kept of for public display of who gives what and that sort of thing. So you give to your local community, and then you can give to your national community, and you can also give to the international fund as you choose. But there is no obligation ever to be doing so. It's entirely your choice. So for me, working for the National Treasurer's Office was a delight to help share with souls the the really delightful dimensions of, of what the Baha'i Fund is all about and what its purpose is. And part of the purpose that I loved so much was that it wasn't only to to help support the Baha'i community efforts. It was also used to help support activities conducted by Baha'is in support of other people. There are many Baha'i social and economic development projects globally where Baha'is dedicate themselves to being of service to the communities in which they live. And I would say the dominant projects that are in existence uh, are educational projects, schools especially. And so at one time, the Baha'i World Center asked me to go visit Baha'i schools around the world and and give them a, a report on how things are going. So, my, again, astonishment. I was given the privilege of flying to Baha'i communities all around the world in about 40 different countries, if I remember correctly, and observing what they were doing for education in their communities. Everything from large, formal, excellent schools, such as a university in Bolivia, to very small, very rural, very independent, individually uh, operated schools in very rural communities like in, in remote parts of Thailand or remote parts of Chile. And for me, that was just a remarkable privilege and experience to, to visit these locations and see the wonderful things people were doing voluntarily and with no seeking of any income of their own, but rather attempting to fulfill the guidance of, of Baha'u'llah, which is that the most important thing we can be doing in our communities is providing education for our children. And so that was an amazing gift and delight for me, and one I still, of course, relish and reflect on with joy. What's the Baha'i teaching about education that puts so much focus on it? Well, the, the basic focus on education is one of the primary teachings of Baha'u'llah is the independent investigation of truth, which means that every individual has the capacity to recognize truth for themselves. And so in order to be able to explore their own capacities and have, have people develop their own gifts and talents, it also is, is a means by encouraging people to get to know about the world and to learn about all different dimensions of the world. Science is a very significant element of, of the teachings of the Baha'i faith. And so Abdu'l-Baha, the, the son of the prophet founder Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, his son, who was a wonderful teacher of Baha'i principles, he made it very clear that learning science was uh, a fundamental 
necessity for mankind so that we could apply all those tools of research and application to the development of, of human knowledge and, and human capacities. And so learning uh, in every dimension, whether it's science or whether it's reading and writing or whether it's math or whatever other dimension of education languages, it's just a, a fundamental basic necessity in terms of the understanding of the Baha'i community that to educate our children is to carry forward the well-being of mankind. So you were saying that at some point you were asked to go to Ecuador. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, what happened was when I was working on my uh, doctorate, one of the things I had to discover was what I was going to do for a dissertation. And because I was working at the National Center, one time a member of the Universal House of Justice, Dr. David Drew, came to the, the Baha'i community and was giving a talk. And after his talk, I went up to him and said, Dr. Rue, I'm, I'm working on a doctor. Do you have any suggestions for me for a research I might do that would be a benefit to the Baha'is? And he was delighted at my question and asked me what my interests were, and I explained it was in communication and media and things. And he said, well, you know, there is a, a radio station that the Baha'is are just starting in Ecuador. And wouldn't that be delightful if you could go down there and research what they're doing? And so that's what I did. Mm. <laughs> and so with Dr. Ruth's encouragement, he was one of my two great mentors in my life. Uh, I was able to go down with my wife and our daughter to Ecuador. And we lived there for a year and a half as I did research in all the indigenous communities surrounding the town of Otavalo, where the radio station was based, to learn how Baha'i media could be of service to the communities that were listening to the station. One of the most significant things that the station did was to promote indigenous music. There were over 30 radio stations in Ecuador at the time, and there wasn't a single station that was using the native language, Quechua, of which 50% of the population was, that was their mother tongue. But there were no radio stations that were using Quechua as a primary tool for the station. And so a wonderful man by the name of Raul Pavone, who lived in Otavalo, launched the concept of starting a radio station that the Baha'is could use to be of service to the indigenous people and to help them establish and, and maintain and expand their, their native culture in the region. And so that's what the station did. And one of the great delights was that with the establishment of the station, it resurrected traditional music for the people of that part of Ecuador. And even now there are, there are groups that got their start in those days that are traveling the world. And people are delighted to hear Ecuadorian folk music, if you want to call it that. And it's just a, a real delight.
So what happened when you returned to the States? Uh-huh. Well, while we were in Ecuador, our son was born, Lucas. When we left Ecuador and came back to the States, we came back to Oregon. When I'd been in Ecuador, I was also working for a, a Canadian development project, CEDA, and I was using the Baha'i radio station to help educate the people in the region that they were researching. There was uh, a dear friend of ours who was living in Kenya with his family, Phil Christensen, and he had been talking to his boss. They were, doing, they were producing educational radio programs to teach English to the children of Kenya because English is the dominant instructional language after the fourth grade. And so they were using radio to teach English to all the kids in the remote areas of Kenya, which has a dominant, has like 40 different languages that are spoken in the country to find a program that could help the children learn English. So they could all have the opportunity to go beyond third grade. Phil had called his boss in Washington saying that they were going to have to close down the project because they couldn't find someone to be the primary producer of the programs. Phil called a a dear friend of his, a man named Dwight Allen, and Dwight encouraged Phil to contact me. I got a phone call from Phil, and the next thing you know, my wife and I and our two kids moved to Kenya. So we lived in Nairobi for four years, and I was the producer of educational radio programs for the children of Kenya, which was a delightful experience, needless to say. And having my children grow up in Africa was another Amazing gift. When I had gone around the world many years earlier, of all the places I I most was attracted to was East Africa. And so to have a chance to move there was just remarkable and an amazing gift. And I I do not believe in coincidence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I very much believe that privileges fall in your lap because you're ready to serve in significant ways. And so that's what happened for us. And so here we then lived for four years in in Nairobi. And while we were there, my wife, Delane, and Phil Christensen's wife, Debbie, they developed and produced educational booklets for, for mothers to help them teach their children. And they're called the Mother's Books, and they have been lauded by UNICEF and UNESCO and they've been circulated globally and used in many different countries as primary tools for helping promote education in the family and in developing countries and letting women be the primary core source for having that occur. So that was, I think that was our primary experience in East Africa, of course. And then the project was ending, and one day I got a phone call from Dwight Allen, who was serving on the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the U.S., informing me that they had a new radio station in South Carolina and asked me if I would consider coming and being the manager of that station. 
So what do you know? We ended up moving from Kenya to South Carolina and mm. working on another educational cultural radio station, WLGI in Hemingway, South Carolina. So that was a wonderful experience because what the station does is it, of course, it, it shares the Baha'i teachings with the audience, and it also emphatically promotes uh, education and community development and that sort of thing. And it's had a marvelous impact now for 25 years, and that's... Uh, was a real privilege and a gift to be involved in that project. And then I got a call from Haifa, the World Center of the Baha'is, asking me if I would serve on a committee to oversee Baha'i involvement in mass media globally. It was called the International Baha'i Audiovisual Center. And I consented, of course, and then we had our first meeting and elected officers, and I was elected to be the executive secretary of the committee. Heights of the World Center asked me if I would establish my office in Toronto, Canada, at the Baha'i Center of Canada. So we moved from South Carolina to Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we did there for a little while. And then a couple of years later, the... Baha'i Community of Canada opened up a Baha'i residential school for students in the 7th to 12th grade. And when we learned about that, my wife learned about that at a conference, and she came home from the conference that occurred if there were any possibility that Katura could go to this Maxwell School, wouldn't that be wonderful? And so I consulted with my committee, and they agreed to let me move my office from Toronto to Shawnigan Lake, British Columbia, which is where the school was. And so my wife and I took positions at the school, and I also had my office for the committee there. And so for the next, if I'm remembering correctly, about the next seven years or so, we lived in British Columbia. And both of our kids attended the Maxwell International Baha'i School, and that's where our daughter graduated from. Now, are you still working for the Baha'i World Center in the area of media? No, I, uh, I did that for several years, but eventually that office, the responsibilities of that office got transferred to other areas, and so that office closed down. And so my wife and I stayed at the Baha'i International School in in British Columbia, but then I got offered, I got a call saying, Kurt, do you know anybody who does what you've done in Africa, teaching radio language courses that speak French? And I said, oui, il y a longtemps depuis que j'ai parlé français, mais je peux le faire. And, which is, yes, it's been a long time since I've spoken French, but I could do it. <laughs> And so he hired me to go establish an educational radio program for the children of Guinea in West Africa. And so Delane and I moved to West Africa to do that, and that's what we uh, were able to then 
due for a year. But while I had been working at the at the school in Canada, I uh, contracted multiple sclerosis, and so uh, I had to abandon that. And well, I didn't have to abandon. I mean, I was fortunate to be able to do a lot of things with multiple sclerosis. And when I got offered that job in in West Africa, I talked to my uh, neurologist, and he said, well, give it a try, Kurt, see how it'll go. And I was able to do a lot of things, and it was wonderful, but the problem was the heat. And the heat was so severe I couldn't function well. And so after a year of working there in that wonderful project with the delightful people of Guinea, a predominantly Muslim country, and just former French colony, so a very fascinating group of people. But uh, because I was so ill, I had to abandon that job, and at the end of the first year, uh, we had to return to Canada. And so then I was unable to work, and so we came back from Guinea to Canada, and then we lived in in an old in a cabin that we used to own there at Shawnigan Lake. But then it was very difficult for my wife to find work. But fortunately, we we discovered that in her hometown of McMinnville, Oregon, where her elderly parents were living, there's a, a very nice uh, small private liberal arts college here, Linfield College, and they were looking for. Uh, a person to help oversee the dormitory programs at the college. And they were also looking for an adjunct professor of mass communication. <laughs> so Delaney and I moved down to McMinnville, and she was able to be here to care for her parents, who were both not doing well and in their late, in their 80s. And But it was so beautiful that she was able to be here and take care of them for the final years of their lives. And I was able to be teaching in the college here, mass communications programs, which I really enjoyed. And then my MS got so bad that I was really concerned that I might not be able to be of reliable service to the students. So when I was offered a tenured position to stay on the faculty, I told them I didn't think that would be fair to the students. And so I uh, finished working for the college. My wife still works there and is doing wonderful work. And they're very grateful for her. And she's even won significant awards in the Pacific Northwest for her service at the college, which is wonderful. And so now I'm living in a care home here in McMinnville, six blocks from my wife's place. And so I... I'm still in, I'm very grateful for the uh, internet and having my computer because that's how I spend my days now is many hours a day I'm sitting at my computer exchanging email with friends around the world and on Facebook and also participating in some of the Baha'i courses. There's a wonderful online course at the U.S. Baha'i community offers called the Wilmette Institute, and that provides courses on uh, study of 
comparative religions, study of the history of different religions individually. Uh, for example, there's a delightful one on Christianity coming up soon, an introduction to the Baha'i faith coming up soon with the Women Institute course. So I've been enabled to participate as an instructor for several different courses on that. So it's been another way I've been able to stay connected with my enjoyment of teaching and my opportunity to stay connected with students globally. Kurt, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Kurt, well, thank you so much, Warren. I'm very grateful. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kurt Hine, who, among other things, lived in East Africa where he was involved in social and economic development projects. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. No trouble and problems don't exist. I check on the other, that ain't the case at all. It goes back to the time when I was very small. I didn't mind the size and age, my papa used to say. You can always look at the negative, but you should always live in the positive. So I try every day to live in that way. What is and how much they can And be the first to complain about nothing And life going their way The attitude's there that I can't do nothing about And very happy with just breathing in and out The ones that when you say let's go make a difference They'll say nah that's okay So I don't waste time on the trip side Cause I do know the real on the flip side And I'm crystal clear every day That's why I Why am I such an optimist? 
when it's more fashionable to be a pessimist from what's in 75% of what we read here in you. Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Ripperton who used to always say when she was living, like fine wine, I like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty. I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough, but never to the point of me saying I've had enough. Long as my heart beats, I'm giving up. That's why I say every day, yeah. What do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision, and it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon. But truly, there's much guidance through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the car. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.